Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christchurch Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. We're so excited to have you with us. My name is Bill Danaher, and I'm the rector of Christ Church Cranbrook. Uh, we are delighted to have you for an incredibly important uh, webinar. Uh, I'm delighted that to have with us uh, the doc, uh, Dr. Stephen Taylor, who has written, recently written a, an incredibly important book called The Psychology of Pandemics. He is the author of more than 300 peer-reviewed publications. And Dr. Taylor researches anxiety disorders, in particular obsessive-compulsive behavior and post-traumatic stress disorder. His recent work on the psychological effects of pandemics has been covered in The Independent and The New York Times. With uh, Dr. Taylor is Dr. Stephen Huprick. Uh, Dr. Huprick is author of more than 100 peer-reviewed publications and author or editor of six professional texts. He is the immediate past president of the International Society for the Study of Personality Disorders, and he is a fellow of the American Psychological Association and of the Society for Personality Assessment. In addition to his research and academic work, he has 21 years of clinical practice. And then we have Dr. Julie Brakazuski, who is a clinical psychologist and director of Monarch Behavioral Health in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. She's an expert in individual therapeutic treatment as well as community level services and a psychological assessment and testing and other interventions. She's published and presented works in peer reviewed journals, book chapters, national conferences, and she is a fellow of the American Psychological Association. Uh, thank you all for joining us. We are so excited to have you with us. Um, and I'm really grateful to my panelists as well as to Dr. Taylor for being with us with an incredibly important um, an, an incredibly important uh, presentation. Um, we are, um, uh, what I'd like to do is just give you all an orientation, those of you who are coming online, as to how to manage uh, this, this new technology, uh, which is bedeviling us a little bit tonight, maybe because of so much use. But over to the right of your screen, you have uh, a chat feature, which you can provide some uh, feedback um, and, um, and I also know that uh, many of you are still trying to get online because of the, of the, the incredible popularity of this topic. Um, we'll, be, we'll be monitoring that chat, but we won't be able to um, be able to, to do a lot of work um, to, to, um, to, to answer or interact with you on that chat. But that chat is still a good way to get in touch with Meredith Skaronsky, who's going to be serving as our kind of host and, and, and manager of this discussion. At the bottom of your screen, you're going to see a, a two little uh, uh, blurbs, and they'll say Q&A. And those, um, that's where you'll be able to, uh, to, to, to provide us with some uh, feedback. And, and the Q&A pops up, and, and there's a chance for you to, 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 to write a question there. And we'll start to approach those towards the end of the webinar. Um, so other than that, I think um, uh, I'd like to, to do two things as you're getting on. 
Um, one is to, to make you aware that we, we have a resource sheet uh, that's going to have some self-management uh, uh, techniques, and we're also going to have um, some uh, further uh, uh, resources for you to consult uh, for caregivers and for uh, uh, both local and national groups that can provide you the, the assistance you have. We're going to send that to you by email uh, after, the, um, uh, after the conference ends. Um, we're also um, going to send it to you both in PDF form and in Word form so that you can make any adjustments that you want to. We consider this a resource that you can all use as best you see fit within the many spheres that you inhabit. I also want to um, take a moment as we get ourselves situated to um, offer a, a prayer of, uh, in silence for all those uh, who are affected by this uh, pandemic. And uh, many of us who are in Detroit know that the, uh, this pandemic has been um, uh, taking down some very, very public people uh, in Detroit. And um, it's, been a, um, it's been a very, um, a very challenging time for us as in Metro Detroit to deal with this. So just before I go into that prayer, I'm just, suggest I'm just getting some feedback that the that there's still a little bit of, of technical issues with my microphone. Is that still the case? Okay, I'm gonna just keep going. <laughs> Let's take a moment and just feel our um, uh, place our feet flat on the floor and feel the back of our chairs with our back. And let's go into uh, a posture of, of prayer and silent reflection. And let us give thanks for this opportunity for us to learn and to get to know the challenges uh, and psychological dynamics around pandemics. Let us also take a moment to lift up to God all those who are suffering from this pandemic, for those who are sick and dying, for the families that are mourning them, uh, for the incredible work that our healthcare providers are, are doing for them and the heroic work they're doing, and for the many people who are caring for the sick during this time who are constantly putting themselves at risk as they care for those who are vulnerable. And let us pray for all those who have been economically affected by this pandemic, who have lost their jobs and are seeking employment, who are experiencing food insecurity, who are um, lonely and isolated as a result of social distancing. Let us ask that God be with them as well and enable us to be ministers to them as best we can in this time. And let's uh, lift up all of the spiritual and psychological first responders to this pandemic, to the psychologists and counselors and pastors 
who are spending so much of their time and energy and resources, uh, personal and otherwise, to minister and to guide and to therapeutically work with people who have been affected by COVID-19. So the challenges that they're facing with their technology, for the, the work that they're trying to do to carry on their therapeutic work in the midst of some difficulty, for the balance that they have to maintain with their home life as well as their work life. Let's lift all those people up as well. And finally, let's uh, lift up all the people who have signed up for this seminar tonight. We are so grateful that we have this opportunity to learn from uh, new research that came out just in time, that we can deepen our knowledge of, of what we're contending with, and also that we can grow in our own self-knowledge and self-understanding as we seek to help others manage this pandemic in different ways. All of these things we place in God's hands and we ask that God would be present where we cannot be and that God would help us be present where we can be during this time and that God would give us the wisdom as we read elsewhere and pray elsewhere to know the difference between our own limitations and our own challenges and our own powerlessness and the things that we can do. Amen. So it is a delight to have uh, Stephen Taylor with us and to just give you a little bit of background about his work. Uh, Dr. Taylor uh, wrote The Psychology of Pandemics. It was published in October uh, 2019, and uh, I'm, I'm completely um, uh, amazed that, that you had the foresight to know somehow that this book would be incredibly relevant. And so the first question I, I want to ask uh, Dr. Taylor is, how did, he, um, how did you find your way uh, to this research topic, and, and how did you find your way to writing this book? Well, my background is in anxiety disorders. That's what I specialize in, including health anxiety, and that is people who worry excessively about their health. And that's my clinical work and, and my research. And a couple of years ago, I kept coming across news reports, um, interviews with virologists predicting that there would be another pandemic. And I started reading about it out of curiosity, actually. And the more I read into it, the more I realized that pandemics weren't just some virus spreading throughout the globe, there were in, in important ways psychological phenomena in which what people do or choose not to do influence whether um, a, a infection is spread or contained. If people choose not to wash their hands or choose not to social distance, that influences the spread of disease. And importantly, pandemics, uh, uh, psychology was important because people's emotional reactions are important too. We've seen this recently with panic buying, for example. So. The more I read about it, the more I thought, wow, psychology is really important here. But no one had ever put it all together into a single book. So I had to bring together um, various pieces, various um, 
subdisciplines of psychology, epidemiology, virology, medical anthropology, history of medicine, to bring it all together, to put it together into a coherent whole. Funny thing enough, um, in July last year, I took it to my, my editor, who publishes some of my books, and I said, look, I've got this cool idea, psychology of pandemics. He looked at it and said, no, no one's going to read that, and he rejected it. <laughs> I was really deflated by that. So I went and found another publisher, and we got it published a few weeks before COVID-19 broke out. I knew another pandemic was coming because it had been predicted for a long time. I just didn't know it would be coming so soon. Hmm. Hmm. One of the things that you, uh, an important point that you make in your book that I find so powerful is that the psychological footprint of a pandemic is uh, greater than its medical or even economic uh, footprint. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah. What I mean by footprint here is the number of people affected by it. Um, just to give you an example, we've got some research ongoing. We've currently got data on about three and a half thousand people. There are people from the communities from the United States and Canada um, asking them about how they're impacted by the pandemic. Many of them are very anxious. Many of them are lonely and stressed in social isolation. Some are experiencing financial difficulties. About a third are experiencing financial difficulties. 27% um, are hoarding. And yet you ask them whether they know anyone who has COVID-19 only 1% know someone and about 1% have been diagnosed with COVID-19 or probable COVID-19. So the actual incidence of COVID-19 among these people is very, very low, 1%. And yet many of them, a third or more, are impacted in some financial or emotional or stress-related way. Hmm. And so, and, and so it, and, and in some sense, it's not just the... the um the kind of psychological responses, the hoarding, and, and it's, the, it's kind of a, it seems like it's a, a broad spectrum of, of responses that get triggered by a pandemic that um, in terms of numbers, you know, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's PTSD as you've written. Yeah, and those emotional reactions change over time. To give you an example, someone I know, he was what we call an under-responder. He, he was denying that this pandemic was a big deal. He thought he doesn't need to socially distance. He thinks the media has exaggerated it at all. Then yesterday, he learned that one of his good friends passed away from COVID-19 in New York. And that completely turned him around. Now he's very, very anxious. He's socially distancing. He's washing his hands. So, yeah, that's an example of, of some of the um, extreme reactions you see. And we're still seeing today where... Some people are, are underplaying the whole thing. They, they're not socially distancing, they're partying on the beaches, um, they're not washing their hands, and they're the people who spread infection to other people. And then at the other end of the, of the spectrum, you've got people who are highly anxious and highly worried about getting infected. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing thing because one of, the, one of the things you mentioned in your book is that for many people, they have a kind of resiliency even under the conditions of a pandemic. But there are others for whom maladaptive behaviors and other kind of psychological maladies start to kind of exa be exacerbated by the pandemic, and 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 it's it's uh, it's connected um, not only by by proximity but also by just uh, how they respond to the sense of what's happening. Exactly. So research on previous disasters and pandemics shows that most people are highly resilient that we as a species have survived countless pandemics in the past, 
and people will survive this one, although many will be distressed or financially hurting during it, but we will get through it, but not everyone will. Um, a minority, and nobody knows how many at this point, will have psychological problems. Some may have long-lasting psychological problems, such as post-traumatic stress disorder. And they're often people who have uh, pre-existing emotional problems too. It's funny, it, it, just as anecdotal, and, and I, um, I, I'm going to make sure that we do have opportunities for our, our panelists to come in, but I, we were doing a survey of, a congregation, of our congregation, and we have about 2,000 members, and we decided mm -hmm. in our survey to begin with the oldest members, because we thought they would be the ones that would be facing the, the most difficult times psychologically. So everybody over 80 has been uh, connected and, and you know we've contacted them one way or another to just do a wellness check by phone and and without exception they are doing psychologically incredibly well in fact they are they're kind of pointing us to others you know saying you know there, there are other people that are suffering we're fine we're going to get through this and um, from my perspective i wonder if that's a little bit of detroit pride you know the city uh, as a whole has been through kind of so many, uh, so many rises and falls that they, they've kind of seen this before as it were. Um, but, um, but, you know, I, 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 I it is, it's, a, it's a stunning thing. And I, I've been trying to think about it psycho psychologically is that are these, do, you know, do, do, I mean, of course we know people in their eighties who suffer from psychological maladies, but is there a kind of thinning of the herd that happens? Like when people who are resilient, they somehow live this longer and they're able to handle things better and they have more perspective. That may be, you may well be right there. And people who have been through adversity and survived it, they can get toughened up emotionally so they're better able to deal with stresses. And if these people are plugged into their community, so they're members of your congregation, they're getting contacted, they have social support, that can go a long way toward helping them. So uh, that's wonderful that, that your seniors are doing well. Not everyone, unfortunately, does so well. There was um, some research on SARS in Hong Kong, and about the time SARS broke out, there was a spike, a fourfold increase in suicides among seniors. Mm. And they were people who were lonely, socially isolated, um, some were medically frail, they were frightened of becoming a burden on their families. So um, that, we don't know whether this will happen with COVID-19. We hope it doesn't. And SARS and COVID are, are different in some important ways. But we need to make sure we do reach out to the senior members of our communities to make sure that, that they're, as you say, a check-in to see how they're doing. Mm, mm. Um, and I would add to that that I know our senior population um, and, and perhaps being connected in with the congregation mitigates this a little bit, but that they're um, at the highest risk for social isolation before a pandemic. So to be experiencing that so social isolation and food insecurity, um, it, you know, that it really ups the ante once everybody is on social distancing protocol. Um, that certainly really increases risk for that depression and anxiety and further social withdrawal. I mean, if, even if they 
they have means to do video chat or phone calls. Um, so certainly, yeah, putting that into action, knowing that um, that data from the SARS epidemic, understanding how we can use that to really be reaching out to our seniors, I think is important. So it's, it's great that, you know, 80 and up, you've already initiated that. But I think as individuals, we can also think, who can I be reaching out to, kind of writing a letter to, to see if they mm -hmm. need supplies or need a through a window interaction? You know, <laughs> how can we lift up our community and those that are at highest risk? You know, I, I just, this discussion reminds me of um, back at 9-11 and, um, and the reactions we all had to 9-11. And um, I was talking with a lot of people in my peer group at the time, and I was 30-something at that point. But I remember talking with dear friends um, who actually introduced my wife and me. And they um, had um, grown up uh, in World War II and, uh, you know, were retired and very well connected and integrated into the community. But they were the most uh, calm and resilient of it all. They had lived a, a long life. They had seen a lot. And they recognized that, um, you know, there is a resiliency in people and in societies and in cultures that will, will persist. And I always found that to be very reassuring. So I, I think there's certainly a lesson to be learned, um, you know, from those who have uh, lived a good life and a long life and who've, who've been resilient. But as Julia is suggesting, I, I do think we have to be mindful of the fact that um, not everyone is in, you know, such, such a situation. And the risk factors you described, I, I think, are very relevant. <laughs> Well, and I, and I want to be clear that, that, I, that there's, there's the database that I'm mentioning is incredibly selective and doesn't represent everybody at a whole, as a whole. And, and you know, the, the, by and large, the seniors who are members of, my, of our congregation uh, are, are, have been economically, are economically privileged. They have many different connections, so they don't feel things as closely as many others in our, in our, in our communities. Um, uh, and so, I, you know, but I, I do think it's it's important that 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 resiliency also gets lifted up, as you were noticing in your book. It's it's a it's a key thing, but also also to recognize all of these these major issues that people are facing. Um, I want to move on to a a really interesting um, uh, part of your book, which is not merely to, to to speak about the therapeutic treatment or interventions that we can make or the screening we can do to help people who are experiencing fear, anxiety, PTSD, or other, other kinds of neurotic behavior. But, um, but you make the interesting point that psychological factors influence the spreading of emotional stress and infection. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, we've, we've seen this already. We saw um, the rise of racism uh, when the outbreak arose. And, and unfortunately, that is fairly common during past pandemics. Um, when people get threatened by a, a disease coming from an outside source, they look for someone to blame, they become xenophobic, particularly the people who are frightened of infection. So obviously that's very socially disruptive. We saw a spike in anxiety when the World Health Organization declared this a pandemic. And then we also saw panic buying um, where yeah. People were told to go and stock up. And so everyone went to the supermarket with a common goal and inevitably someone who's very anxious will overpurchase. And images of overstuffed shopping carts and empty aisles went viral. And then it, it, the whole thing snowballed. People became frightened of um, 
of uh, missing out on, on, on supplies, so panic buying happened. Um, other psychologically important factors we've seen are, uh, in some places anyway, the rush of the worried well into hospital. If you look at the yeah. symptoms of COVID-19, the symptoms are fairly non-specific. Um, and most people, and this is on our survey anyway, that most people think that they're flu symptoms or cold symptoms. Some, some people think that a runny nose is an indication of COVID-19, which it's not. So these people are misinterpreting. I can understand why that would happen. COVID-19 is in the top of everyone's mind. And suddenly you have the sniffles, you misinterpret it. Oh, maybe I've got COVID-19. I better go to hospital. So you've got this surge of the worried well into hospitals, overwhelming the healthcare resources. So that's another important um, psychological phenomenon. And then, of course, we've got the whole issue concerning the stress and impact of social distancing, of people choosing not to socially distance, which, again, makes it difficult to control the spread of infection. Yeah, I want to get to social distancing in a moment because it's really a key uh, and complex uh, phenomenon psychologically as well as as a as a tactic to try to stop uh, pandemics, which has been and it 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 really is one of the the major ways you do it. But the, what's interesting to me as well is what you wrote is about the whole concept of of the psychology of super spreaders, um, and those are people who find their ways into many different communities. They are they are chronic uh, chronically chronic carriers of a disease, but they're um, they have uh, uh, mild symptoms or are asymptomatic. And they kind of go through and they keep spreading it to people, which is, I think, um, it seems like that is a major factor in COVID-19. Um, it, it may turn out to be because people can be contagious, or, uh, contagious, but asymptomatic or have minimal symptoms. And we saw a case in Europe recently where one fellow infected 18 other people because he didn't realize he was infected. And that's happened in SARS too, quite dramatically, where where people have gone on to infect dozens of other people um, because they were, they were uh, shedding virus but weren't aware that they were sick. So we don't know how big of a problem it will be with COVID-19, but we are seeing it already. Yeah, I mean, and, and, the, and the example that you gave in your book that I find is, is, you know, historically what many people do when they study epidemiology is Mary Mallon, who was a cook uh, in New York City in the early 20th century, who um, uh, was, uh, was had had typhoid and and continued to but 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 was asymptomatic and just carried it to several right. different households and different uh, uh, places. She was um, she she um, uh, went so far. She was forbidden to do so. She did not uh, respect any of the uh, the authority of science or the government and 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 uh, went so far as to change her identity and change her work. Um, she's she's an example, an extreme example. But but I'm wondering if it, 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 not that I want to encourage you to do any kind of psychological profiling across the centuries. But what what is the is there a kind of profile for a, a, a super spreader? I'm not aware of any single profile. I think some of these people are well by definition they come into contact with lots of people. So if they're yeah. in the hospitality industry, if they're highly gregarious, then they're going to be more likely to spread. But I'm not aware of any single psychological profile. Mary Mallon's case was tragic. It's tragic for everyone involved. She wanted to be a cook. That was her calling in life. And she was um, shedding virus. She, I think she infect, uh, 
sorry, bacteria. She was infected with tuberculosis, so she infected another 50 people. She was in denial. She denied that she was, there was anything wrong with her. She just wanted to be a cook. And she would go from household to household, but she sort of knew she was spreading infection because she would move into a house to serve as a cook, then everyone would get sick with tuberculosis, and then she would have to move on to another place. So in, in the back of her mind, she knew that she was carrying the infection, but just didn't want to admit it to herself. And the sad thing for her was that she was involuntarily incarcerated in a sanitarium uh, because she wouldn't refrain from working as a cook. Yeah, they, uh, she was incarcerated, then she was released with the understanding that she wouldn't work uh, in the food service industry. She promptly disappeared, changed her name, and started working at a maternity hospital where she got lots of, of young women sick and then was returned to the sanitarium. Very mm. tragic. It makes me wonder, would there be a more humane outcome for someone like her? Could she have gotten a job somewhere else or would she have agreed to that? Yeah, and that's, and that, I mean, I find her case interesting because in many ways as an Irish immigrant with, um, with basically domestic skills, um, yeah. Mary Mellon did not have other options before her to do besides, you know, starving. And, and um, you know, her decision to survive in a sense um, probably overrode any, any kind of recognition of the impact of her, of her actions, you know. Um, yeah. I, I view her more sympathetically as in, in retrospect um, uh, than maybe uh, uh, she's been sometimes portrayed. Uh, you know, in one, of her, in one of her statements that she made to a reporter at one point, as you mentioned in your book, she said that she felt like she was being banished like a leper. Yeah. For carrying the disease. And... Um, and that, and not to rush things, but that does speak a little bit about the tendency to stigmatize um, uh, not only uh, the people who are carriers of a of a of a of a, a disease like COVID nineteen, but also whole groups uh, because of the of their association with it, be, maybe because of the name like Spanish flu or or SARS or 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 something like that. You're absolutely right, and part of the problem was. Um, a lot was not known about tuberculosis back then. They thought the infection was uh, located in her gallbladder and wanted to remove her gallbladder. So the doctors didn't know how to manage uh, the disease either at the time. And so it was a tragic situation where her options were limited. But you're right, it does raise the important issue of stigma. And it's just too easy to jump on that bandwagon and blame outsiders for your own problems. And you know, this happened during SARS as well, where Healthcare workers were stigmatized in their own communities. They were shunned and avoided um, because people in the community were frightened that the healthcare workers were uh, carrying SARS. Even the children of healthcare workers were discriminated against. Um, they were, in some cases, being told to take their kids out of kindergarten because people mm. were frightened. Now, I mm. hope, really hope we don't see this during COVID-19. And I am encouraged that um, people seem to be stepping up and supporting our healthcare workers. Here in Vancouver, for example, uh, for the past week at 7 p.m. every night, people go out onto their balconies and start cheering. And they're cheering for the healthcare workers. That's, that's what they're doing. I think that's wonderful. That is, that is such an incredible, uh, what, a, what a wonderful, what a wonderful uh, thing to do. And uh, what a lovely thing to do. Wow, that's beautiful. You know, the, to look at it from the other side, you know, not only do psychological factors affect 
the the emotional uh, stress and the spread of the disease, but you also cover the fact that psychological uh, uh, factors uh, affect the, how how uh, people respond to the disease and to the pandemic and how they 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 um, they treat, for example, the risk communication about what's happening to them and uh, all sorts of different factors play a role in how they read that information. Um, there's also um, uh, the tendency to, to, to go to fall prey to quack cures and folk remedies uh, and then to engage as you've been saying uh, uh, particularly this 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 uh, this case uh, in just kind of incredibly curious hoarding uh, like toilet paper um, can you say a little bit more about that um, well it was interesting uh, if it wasn't toilet paper it would have been something else I mean uh, someone was um, shamed in Vancouver recently for hoarding um, frozen meat. He went into a, a grocery store and bought all the meat he could stuff into his shopping cart, uh, hoarded that, and that images of that went viral. I think what happened with toilet paper, um, people were stocking up on necessities, and toilet paper is very, um, very distinctive. You can, if you've got a shopping cart, you can see whether it's stacked with toilet paper. So it was distinctive, and, and there were those images that went viral of, people overstocking in toilet paper. And that's why that got stuck in, one reason why that got stuck in people's minds. Uh, mm. And then also the, uh, the, the whole idea of quack cures. I, I've had perfectly reasonable people send me uh, messages on Facebook telling me that lemon juice has some kind of, um, uh, uh, is some kind of reasonable way to combat um, infection by COVID-19. I, it, uh, I, I don't think this has much life, but I'm just telling you, I, I, it came to me. Yes. Yeah, I've, I've heard, I haven't heard the lemon juice one, I heard the garlic one and turmeric, that um, people are desperate to make themselves feel safe, they're gonna to turn to just about anything. Now, part of this is trying to get a sense of control. We, we deal with stress better if we feel like we have a sense of control. And with COVID-19, we're told that the special threatening thing is coming, that we don't need to wear masks, that all we should do is wash our hands and socially isolate. And for a lot of people, that's not enough and they want to try and make themselves feel safe. Now, I don't mind if people go out and pursue quack cures so long as it's, they're not harming themselves. There have been some cases though, recently of people um, overdosing on uh, chloroquine, which was, um, it's a malaria drug, but it's also used to clean fish tanks, to kill parasites in fish tanks. There was a case recently where a man died because he took those chloroquine pills from his fish tank thinking it would keep him safe. My because goodness. Misinformation had got out that this was a, um, a magic bullet for COVID-19, which it's not. And there've been other overdoses too. So people need to be really careful if they're pursuing treatments or remedies with no good scientific evidence behind them. They could be doing themselves more harm than good. Yeah, I, I would just Ezra, add that, you know, yeah. certainly the, sorry, the fear is yeah, certainly yeah. does drive that, but there's a lot of psychological vulnerabilities too. Um, Pre-existing psychopathology, um, other kinds of stress um, that's going on, um, you know, personality characteristics, traits. And so, um, you know, I think some of those behaviors can, can be explained in very different ways. I, some of the more malicious ones that you know I've seen are um, you know, some religious leaders claiming to have um, 
you know, a cure and, and trying to get um, their, their congregation to buy something and uh, actually states have shut them down. That's a more extreme example, but it you know kind of goes to show that there's there's a number of different kind of factors that that kind of contribute to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think also it's good to acknowledge that we have um, a set of kind of cognitive biases that get us through the day um, that help us kind of function normally. But then when an unexpected or um, new novel situation comes around, we're still operating on those, how we kind of interact with the environment and assess risk. Um, and one of the things that we do, for instance, I know you'll probably talk about this there, but we check social media. We listen to the news to get information. Um, and then we be become biased in terms of how likely it is that we will actually be impacted by this. Um, and then we seek control, certainly. Um, and then we tend to seek things that create a zero, um, a zero risk. Because um, even when individuals know that something is unlikely, um, they will go and try and do something where they feel like they have no risk to compensate for that anxiety. Um, there have been tons and tons of research studies really inventively conducted um, that are really interesting how we as humans tend to make the error um, to choose something that has zero risk over something that quite honestly makes sense or we might even benefit from. So when we're thinking about managing the anxiety around this, and there really are just a few key things that you can do to keep you and your loved ones safe. Um, and then it's like hard stop, lemon juice ain't gonna do it. Salt water ain't gonna do it. Fish tank cleaner ain't gonna do it. So there's, there's some really simple things that we have to follow, but it doesn't feel like it lowers the risk enough for people when their anxiety is so high. In, in this is in this to pick up on with with that both of these these um, perspectives are kind of raising is you develop uh, in your research um, two kind of basic stances towards uh, the the risk communication that happens during a pandemic. There are people who are monitors, uh, and there are people who are constantly trying to uh, respond to the. The, the slightest indication who are you know checking their temperature night and day um, and and mm -hmm. have a kind of perceived vulnerability to disease that is uh, feeding them and making them miserable and then you have blunters uh, who kind of just kind of see through um, and one thing that I'm interested in those is, is you speak more about those is you know both both of these would seem to be fairly vulnerable to conspiracy theories about COVID-19 which seems to be a major issue that's an interesting question. Um, the monitors, the people who seek out lots of information, tend to have a really poor tolerance for uncertainty. They, they want certainty. Uh, as Julie was talking about, they want to reduce their risk to zero. They're the people who tend to chronically worry. And unfortunately for them, we're, we're in an infodemic with COVID-19. The social media and news media are saturated with stories. So they're getting a lot of information, including misinformation, and including sensational so social media images and videos, which is ramping up their anxiety. So for those people, the question is, do they buy into conspiracy theories? Um, I think the conspiracy theory mentality is a little different. If you believe that COVID-19 was a bioweapon, and that's one conspiracy theory, now, if you believe one conspiracy theory, you're likely to believe another. So people who buy into the COVID-19 bioweapon conspiracy theory also tend to believe that NASA faked the moon landings, that 9-11 was an inside job, 
that JFK was assassinated by the mafia. So it's this kind of paranoid conspiratorial mentality with the idea that they think they know better than everyone else. So they're the conspiracy theories. They, they might not necessarily be monitors or blunters though. And see that in the question that I find fascinating, which you mentioned in this, is that the way you actually get through to both monitors and blunters is by actually doing good, clear, transparent communication. Because uh, monitors respond well to fear uh, mongering. If someone says, my God, don't you, you know, um, uh, you know, wash your hands, uh, sitting is the new smoking, all of this kind of thing, you'll get it immediately because you're just yeah. so, you're so focused. But blunters will, will, will just, re the more emotional an appeal is, the more a blunter will ignore it. Um, uh, they're, they're an interesting psychological profile. And, and, and this actually makes them prone to, to kind of be held captive by conspiracy theorists because people say anti-vaccination people tend to generate these, these incredibly, um, one would say, Catholic views of the world in which they even list you know, the arguments against, um, you know, uh, against uh, not getting someone vac vaccinated and they actually show a kind of openness, whereas the people who are defending vaccination tend to become more and more shrill and forced uh, into kind of stating their position. My God, you've got to be vaccinated. You're, you're putting everybody at danger. And yeah. so it's an interesting psychological problem that arises in the, in the, in the context of pandemics. It's fascinating and, and super complicated. And some of the findings are counterintuitive. You would think that people who are anxious about their health would get vaccinated, but it's the opposite. If you see yourself as highly vulnerable to disease, you're less likely to get vaccinated. And from an evolutionary perspective, that makes sense because a vaccine is, is new on the scene evolutionarily and it involves putting and puncturing your skin and injecting a pathogen into your body. So some people who are highly anxious about getting infected won't get vaccinated. In fact, in our research, we we're looking at it so far, we asked people, if we get a vaccine, will you get vaccinated? 20% of them said no. And part of that is the uncertainty mm -hmm. about the vaccine. Yeah, but it's, mm -hmm. that's gonna be one of the big challenges up ahead for us. I wanna start, um, before we continue to go through some of the things that we've discussed to, to, to cover in this webinar, I wanna actually interject a couple of um, questions that have come our way from the, from the, uh, the people who are watching it. Um, Reverend Sharon Cox um, uh, writes the following. She says, I serve a small congregation in a rural conservative area. My folks are pretty independent and self-reliant and continue to tell me uh, they are doing fine. What signs should clergy become aware of so that would indicate that our parishioners are not coping well with this pandemic? With the biggest challenge being that we are um, limited to phone communication with my parishioners right now. Mm, that's a challenging issue. Um, I guess there's nothing better than knowing your parishioners or knowing that knowing these people. If you see behavior that seems out of the usual, if you have someone who's always turned up to meetings, who's always outgoing and gregarious and suddenly you just don't see them anymore or you don't hear from them, then that would be a, a warning sign. Um, but it's very difficult to figure out how people are coping without information. So we need to, um, know what's going on. I suppose some people that you would worry about would be the people who have, have a history of emotional problems. Um, 
some of those people would be worth reaching out to specifically. But if you've got people who are pretty independent and self-reliant, um, I would expect that most of them would be doing well. In some ways, this pandemic can be regarded as Christmas time for, for um, survivalists because they're already prepared and they've been waiting. Uh, and so they're not going to know exactly what to do. So I would expect that those people would not be as anxious as, say, the unprepared people who go yeah. out and flying. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, too, for, to that specific question, that if your parishioners are getting more isolated um, and maybe detaching even further, kind of, you know, perhaps more convinced that their perspective is right when there's other evidence to suggest things are getting worse, um, I would certainly... Think of that as a warning sign and, and uh, perhaps want to reach out even further to check on them. And I think Dr. oftentimes our community leaders um, and clergy are the front line to mental health intervention. Um, you, know, you guys see it first and then provide an avenue for resources. So when speaking to people, knowing, asking, you know, what are, what are you doing every day now that everybody's on lockdown and getting a sense for are they keeping daily routines? Are they functioning within their home? Do they have, you know, a, a project um, or are they able to work during this lockdown? Are they, when's the last time they spoke with family or friends? Are they able to get creative and do some sort of um, social interaction? Um, and if people are seeming kind of withdrawn or confused, um, or again, like you said, retreating and do some really um, kind of more um, severe thinking patterns, um, absolutely, those are warning signs that somebody's not coping with this um, as well as we would love them to. One of the things that you have, Dr. Taylor, in your book that I, I we're going to send, we got permission from the publisher to send this, this excerpt, um, is, is, um, is Dr. Taylor has uh, compiled from different sources some recommendations regarding stress in a pandemic, and it's basically a checklist that we're going to email to you, uh, all of you who have signed up for this uh, uh, tomorrow. Um, and it's in, in it's a it's a it's a very rough and ready screening procedure, um, and by that I mean it's a way that that you can do a, a kind of diagnostic of your of your congregation um, and of yourself um, about uh, how how you are are developing your resilience. How are you um, planning? How are you communicating about this with your children? How are you connecting? And then also. Uh, a really, really key um, uh, part of this is when to seek uh, help. You know, when if you are beginning to experience uh, persistent anxiety, worry, insomnia, irritability, and depression, or avoiding social contacts, if you're if you're really um, obsessing, you know, about your your bodily uh, functions and whether or not you've come down with COVID-19. You know, and my, my example is, you know, oh my gosh, I've got blood on my toothbrush. I must be completely ridden with it. You know, I mean, that's the, the classic kind of thing. Um, uh, and then if you're engaging in, you know, um, some just deep fear about, uh, about your environment. And then finally, and this is, I think, um, this is the one that probably hits close to home with almost everybody. If you're abusing alcohol or drugs or overeating as a way to cope with the stress. And I find what Dr. Taylor's done by gathering that all together to be an incredibly important resource to share with your congregations. And I, at the same time, what, you know, from my perspective, 
I would um, simply ask uh, our, your parishioners, if they happen to live with somebody else, to, um, to, to give that sheet to someone else and then have them kind of look at them and give them some feedback. Because we're not very good at diagnosing ourselves when we come across these things. Well, I'm not drinking too much or isn't this allowed? You know, sometimes I've been, I'm, under, I'm under stress. And then we also have on this sheet, um, uh, you know, some, some way in which you can pick up on these warning signs. And there is a whole list that Dr. Julie has given us of um, not only reliable resources for the coronavirus, but also uh, local services in Metro, uh, in metro, uh, metro Detroit, um, and, and, there, and also places to get, um, if, you're, if any of your congregation is str uh, struggling with food insecurity, they can get some, some food um, and some support in other ways. And then also some, uh, some wider national um, uh, uh, resources for you that are websites that you can go and begin to arm yourself a little bit as you're dealing with this. And so I really appreciate um, uh, all three of you for helping with this, with this fact sheet because I think it's gonna be a rough and ready way. Um, another thing that's in this fact sheet that I wanna mention is we also have um, some, uh, um, some, some criteria for healthcare workers. Um, because it, it, one of the things that Dr. Taylor notices in his book is that healthcare workers often um, don't care for themselves in the midst of this, um, uh, of this, uh, of, of pandemics. Can you say a little bit more about that, doctor? Yeah, <clears throat> this is enormously important because if we lose our healthcare workers, it's going to make it so difficult to manage severe cases of COVID-19. Um, there are a whole bunch of stresses that are fairly unique to healthcare workers in this context. Um, one of the stresses is going to be they need the resources to do their job. They need beds, they need ventilators, they need diagnostic tests. So they're the practical things. If they don't have those, they're going to be experiencing some degree of distress. Um, the healthcare workers that work with COVID-19 patients, they're under social isolation pretty much 24 seven because they're at work, they're uh, isolated. They come home, they're not supposed to interact with family members because they could be infected. So that's enormously stressful too. So they need support from upper level management. Peer support's important where people can get together and, and support groups. And of course, it's important for them to take some time and, and de-stress in the ways that they, they normally might do that, whether it's some kind of physical activity or what have you. And importantly, they need to watch out for um, um, self-defeating or harmful coping behaviors that make matters worse in the long run. And you mentioned overeating and alcohol. It's funny, here in Vancouver, we had panic buying of alcohol and cannabis because marijuana is legal here, right? It's sold by the government. So people were flocking to the government run marijuana stores and buying up all the cannabis they can and alcohol. And you can imagine that that can be, create further problems too if people aren't coping very well and a substance use disorders are spiking. I also wonder about internet shopping. Is that something people do when they're bored too? So you're stuck at home, you're in lockdown, uh, you're experiencing financial difficulties because you can't work, and then you just decide to cope with that by shopping. Not a good idea. So we need to watch out for maladaptive coping behaviors. And one of the other warning signs that people should also look for that you're not doing well is reactions by your friends and family. If your friends and family are saying, hey, you're, you seem not your usual self, you seem more irritable than usual, then that's an important piece of information that 
that you, uh, you, you need to get a handle on your stress. Yeah, another another pastor has written in, and I think it's a really important question, which is that you know um, it, it, what's unique about this um, the situation with social distancing is that um, she has to pro provide pastoral care for people when she herself is experiencing the very same stress and trauma, and um, and so we're paying a very high price for social distancing, and I, I just. It, it's not just an economic uh, price. It's also uh, the ways in which people maintain their identity, their, their social identity, their personal identity, their personal integrity is through these networks that we are now uh, un unable to do except through technology. Mm. And many of our positive coping behaviors um, have just kind of been like like the rug swept out underneath us because um, they involve connecting with other people in person or going places, being out in public. Um, and I know we haven't talked a lot about kids yet and we will get there, but certainly for kids, um, their entire routine has been disrupted. And, and oftentimes during those times when all of those routine, routines are out the window, the normal coping behaviors have kind of been snatched away. That's when a lot of maladaptive coping happens. And for adolescents and adults, I think circling back around to the substance use issue just for two seconds, that people often have the impression that, um, oh, I'm just gonna drink a glass of wine and then a week later it turns into a bottle of wine a night um, or smoke a bit. People think that that will alleviate anxiety. Um, but I think it's really important and good to say really clearly um, that we know uh, depressants such as alcohol and other substances lead to an increase in depression and anxiety. So you might feel okay when you're altered, um, either drunk or high, but then uh, the flip side of that, um, your brain can't produce the happy chemicals that you need to keep going with an okay mood and managing your anxiety. So to put that out there for ourselves and for loved ones, um, to be able to have that conversation that uh, we're definitely at risk for increasing substance use right now, um, as people are kind of shut in and don't know what else to do to pass their time or want to use it as a coping strategy. Um, but it's kind of good to have that information on board. Can well, you, you see know, a little bit? I, yeah, go ahead, please. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, you go well, ahead, because I, I know that this is of interest, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, um, I, I think this might be a good point to talk a little bit about personality and how that's related to this pandemic. Um, you know, because much of what I do in my academic life is more in the area of personality and personality pathology. And I think there's really three areas and there are three parts of personality that we need to think about um, and understand when it comes to, to managing the pandemic. So the first thing that I like to, to talk about or I think about is um, what I would call are the needs that we have that are due to maintaining ourself and the needs that we have for relationships. Um, and it's very important you know, for us to, to function and to, to live a life that's meaningful. We wanna feel that we have a lot of agency, we have autonomy, we've figured out how things work, it's predictable. We can go and do our activity, um, take, a, take a trip somewhere, go somewhere, and we know what to expect. And the same is true with the people around us. We have a predictability. Um, and that, that helps us get more autonomous. It get, helps us feel agentic, like we can complete the things we wanna do. Um, but we also have affiliation needs or relational needs. Um, and we talked a lot about that tonight with the social distancing. But it's so critical um, for us, you know, to, to maintain relationships. 
um, and, and to have a healthy network of support and people around us. But you think about this pandemic, um, the self needs and the relational needs are getting upset in tremendous ways. Um, our autonomy is limited. We aren't able to be as agentic as we want to be. In fact, um, we're faced with new challenges that question, make us question our agency altogether. Um, so it, it really leads into um, quite a challenge in terms of how we think about ourselves. The same is true relationally. You know, we're, we're isolated now. Um, you know, a lot of us have become more dependent upon technology to connect, but a number of people aren't comfortable with that. And so they find themselves really struggling. So that's one area. Um, another area that um, has really taken off and, and is very relevant in um, scientific study of personality right now are what we think of as um, our trait domains. All of us have personality traits. And um, it's become pretty clear that um, these traits are organized into five broad ways of functioning. Um, one of those areas, some in a more healthy end, we might call it like neuroticism or lower neuroticism. At, at more extreme or pathological levels, it, it's high neuroticism, or um, as our DSM is now proposing, we call it high and negative emotionality. Um, people who are um, higher in this trait um, are already viewing themselves in the world in a way that's full of anxiety, uh, fear, stress, tension. So that's gonna predispose one to problems with coping. Detachment is another trait. Um, obviously, if we can you know, connect with other people, even if we're more introverted, if we can at least feel like we um, are connected, that helps. But if we get more and more disconnected and are detached, that, that sets us up for problems. And certainly this pandemic is making it very easy to be detached. Disinhibition is another one of those traits. So the more impulsive we are, the more problems that causes. And certainly in a time of crisis, you don't wanna behave impulsively because then you can make bad decisions. Um, antagonism is another one of these traits. Um, and so if we tend to be pressing against people and against the world, um, it sets us up for problems. But you think about a pandemic, oh my gosh, I've gotta get my groceries, my toilet paper, whatever. Um, it can set us up for problems. And then the last trait domain is what is known as psychoticism. In the healthier expression of that, um, in, in, uh, in language coming out of more like the study of normal or um, typical personality, we call it openness. And you know, people have a degree of openness to experience. They can think outside the box. They can try new things, but at more pathological manifestations, um, they look you know, it looks, starts to look more psychotic. They're out of touch with reality and they don't function well. If someone already is high on that trait dimension and now the world is just seeming to fall apart and intensifies and magnifies um, that, that trait uh, and that trait expression. The last area, and then I'll, I'll stop for others to comment, but um, we've talked a lot about it already, but as a personality psychologist, we think a lot about um, our defense mechanisms are coping. Um, we've talked a lot about substance abuse, but I think one of the things that I would wanna highlight right now is that this is a really abnormal time and yeah. it is normal not to be coping so well. Um, you know, that's, I think beautiful. that's a beautiful point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, in fact, I mean, I have an antidote, antidote to tell about this. So I had a phone call on Sunday evening from the human resources department at the university where I work. 
and they said, we have reason to believe you've been exposed to somebody who has COVID-19. And so I got off the phone and uh, I was like, oh gosh, am I gonna be isolated? What happens if I get sick? I went to my wife and I said, you know, we never did sign, we updated our will and our, our documents. I said, we never signed that. And then I had to kind of stop myself and say, you know, look, I've been isolated already. I'm doing the right things. I feel fine. Um, most of the COVID cases, you don't get real severe symptoms. Um, I mean, some people do, we know that, but you know, I had to kind of get a reality check. Fortunately, the next day I found out I was only exposed in a two hour block at a meeting from two weeks earlier. So I was already out of the critical period. But I, I share that personal example because um, you know, I got pretty anxious there for a moment and, and it's normal to get anxious and it's normal to regress. So I think a take home point from that is we need to be gentle and kind with ourselves and with each other. And we're finding in these ways that we have our defenses are coping. Some people want to take more control and manage, you know, more of that kind of autonomy part. Um, some people do that well. Sometimes they hold on too tight and it makes them more anxious. Other people move away from that and get more dysregulated. And, um, and you know, and they, they have to be kind of managed because they're, they're feeling extreme. But I, I would just want to add that, you know, that we, we have to appreciate that that this is such unusual circumstances and uh, we're all gonna regress, we're all gonna look um, a little little unlike ourselves at times. So, you know, I, I, I think that that is so important. I wanna, I wanna open this up into another question for you all to, to bat around a bit because what I hear you saying and what I think is, um, is something that, that can help us with this is, is basically that right now, because it is so out of whack, one of the most important things we can do is practice some self-compassion um, because, because uh, what's happening, you know, all of the resources that we have on this checklist, which are incredibly important and all the, the pathologies that are going to be stirred up inside of us, if we're normal, we're not going to be adapting well. Those, those take a while to address even in the best therapeutic circumstances, right? I mean, if I call Dr. Julie and say, oh my God, I'm just having this incredible anxiety right now, it's going to take, you know, it, it, she could be Sigmund Freud, but, you know, she's going to be, it's going to take a while to kind of get me back onto my place. And maybe, maybe self-compassion is, is the most important thing we can do. And that picks up on a question that Judith uh, Schellheimer, who's a chaplain at Hellsdale College, um, is writing. And she said that, you know, how, how, give us, what kind of, like, key kind of tools can we use when, when we see those we love who are feeling panic, lack of focus, inability to sleep, et cetera, that comes with this pandemic? What are, what are some of the rough and readies that someone could use? I think, um, I, I think a couple of things in terms of the panic, um, helping people, one, just labeling it, it seems like you're feeling really panicked because um, people will have intense emotion and then it feels disorienting. Um, and then you don't know which way to point um, because our, we're kind of as humans prepackaged in that our emotions come with a biological component that is motivation that then turns into behavior. But if we don't really recognize how we're feeling, we don't know what to do with that motivation and that often turns into negative coping strategies um so helping people really reflecting and being 
sympathetic and empathic and helping them realize I am feeling really anxious. And, um, and we can relate that to our own feelings. I, I've had a tension headache like four nights in a row over here for sure, because my muscles are so tight. Um, just managing everything and everyone and homeschooling, that's a disaster. And, and coming into the office to see people via video. Um, so relating ourselves, being empathic and helping label that. Um, and then also increasing perceptions of control. So that's what we're seeking and really souping up that, are you washing your hands? Are you socially dis Good, you're doing it. You're doing exactly what you need to do. Now, how do we get you socially connected to others? Or another kind of piece of coping with this is contribution. Um, are there ways, do you have things in your home that you can help? I know um, lots of families are coming up with different ideas like making blankets for shelter dogs finding a way to contribute while you're kind of stuck at home so that you feel or writing notes to people in your neighborhood and putting it on the window um, so that they know that you're thinking about them. Ways to contribute um, to connection without being closer than 10 feet away from people. Um, and then for sleep, um, just real fast and quick, um, separating your sleep habitat from your day habitat. So do you do not look at screens, do not read, um, do not work in your bed. You wanna keep um, your bedroom, if it's at all possible, for sleep only. Because uh, that's hitting something right on the head there that maintaining our biological rhythms when we are totally out of whack with our routines is paramount. Um, so if we can keep our sleep schedule on schedule, you're, you're actually doing pretty good, um, yeah. better than a lot of people. So yeah. helping people keep their sleep regimen and hygiene on is important. I was just gonna underscore two of your points because everything you're saying is great. Um, you know, one, just sort of that need to, when people get activated like that, just, just to be able to validate that experience and show you recognize that. Um, I mean, we know out of developmental psychology and attachment research that how we come to know ourselves is so dependent upon the, the mirroring and, and the recognition of the other mm -hmm. in terms of what your inner state is. And so there is such a calming effect and a capacity to organize oneself when you have some reflection there. And, and, I, and it, it sounds so simple, but it, it's terribly important. Um, but then the other thing is just maintaining that kind of schedule on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I, I've talked to a lot of people this week who are, are struggling. And, you know, to the extent that you can keep that schedule that you've had, um, wake up at the same time, keep your activities. Um, you know, I have one, one person who talked about her employer wants, uh, wants everybody to be available, um, you know, kind of round the clock um, because everybody's working different schedules. And I, and I thought, well, you know, that's not really a particularly good idea. We should try to keep things as they are work within those time frames, because that's gonna help you contain, again, it goes back to that sense of agency yourself. You need to have that kind of control. I wanna to go to shift to Dr. Julie's um, questions around families and family care. And uh, you know, those interventions of doing something for shelter dogs. Um, and this is actually, this actually is something that Dr. Taylor picks up on when he, when he was trying to uh, find ways to kind of crack the nut of the blunters, you know, getting them to actually get on board with something. Uh, it, 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 what I hear you saying there is that acts of altruism can actually help. So it's not just, you know, playing Monopoly until you die um, as a family, or you, just are, or, or you just are reduced to tears and fighting. 
with with games, but it's actually your 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 there's an altruistic element to your stuff. Can you say more about that? Well, you know, it's part of partly based on our need to do something as Stephen was saying that, that that sense of agency that we've got something where there's a lot of uncertainty a lot of uncontrollability if we can do things um, it's not only benefiting us personally because we feel more in control it's benefiting our community and all of those little acts can be really important we had one example in our building uh, a, a grade school student had wrote written up a little poster thanking that the couriers put it on the, on, the, on the window of the building. Thank you, couriers, for delivering our stuff. Those little acts of kindness are important. Um, but as people have been saying, it's important. Self-compassion is really important at these times. We need to remind ourselves maybe that this is new territory for all of us. There's only one living survivor of the Spanish flu. None of us have gone through anything like this. Although we need to remind ourselves, of course, we need to put it in perspective, this will end but it is new and disorienting. We can expect to experience some distress. And you, you mentioned family members fighting with each other. We should plan to cope with that. We should have that discussion in the household early on when everyone is calm. What are we gonna do when we get on each other's nerves? So a strategy, a plan, so how they'll deal with that, so. Dr. Julian, what, what kind of plans have you done? Not that I wanna put any pressure on you, but this is your area of expertise. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, kind of circling back to what Stephen said about how we kind of understand ourselves is through our attachment and relationship oftentimes with significant caregivers and of course parents. Um, and so kiddos look to, I'm assuming there aren't many kids watching um, to us as adults, um, to how do they orient to the situation and how do they cope? Um, and we often call, when we're talking about um, family processes and coping with anxiety in the house, we often call um, anxiety the, the red sock because it's as contagious as a virus in the household. Um, like if you put a red sock in your laundry with all the, all the white wash, it all turns pink. Some of it rubs off. Um, and so in our household, one of the main ways that we can manage family interactions is managing our own anxiety. Um, and also a really big thing is um, monitoring our news intake. So uh, I, we haven't really gotten around to talking about this, but this is part of the family process. Um, turn off the TV. It is not helpful to have the TV on background, not for adults and certainly not for kids. Um, what kids often need are really direct facts and then let them ask questions because they'll tell you by their asking questions what developmental level they're at. And if you can label your own anxiety, because we all have it, it's a human trait, we all experience anxiety. If you're able to label it and say, my stomach feels upset today, I'm worried about doing this meeting over video chat, I'm gonna go take a walk for 30 minutes, do you wanna come with me? If we can label the emotion, label how it feels in our body, and then direct it um, in a positive coping trajectory, that models for our kids and things are less likely to escalate in the household. Um, and certainly having those discussions early on about, um, with kids that are kind of um, late elementary to middle school and high school, being able to say, when we get on each other's nerves, what are we gonna ask for? I'm gonna ask to go for a walk. Um, you might ask to have a little extra video game time that night. 
we might choose as parents to respond to kids um, in a more empathic and gentle way during this period than we normally would. If our kid was having a rip-warring tantrum, oftentimes we would just be like, nope, and walk away. Um, but in this circumstance, because kids are looking for us to cope and structure their regulation, we might sit next to them quietly we might kind of put our arm around them in a way that we might usually walk away from that storm. But right now, kids will likely increase their need for affiliation, for snuggles, for wrestling. Lots of attachment behaviors are going to come out. You're going to see lots and lots. My own, my own five-year-old, um, I can't eat a meal without her on me right now. And she is just not that kid. So kids respond in also really surprising ways. Um, kids orient themselves to their structure and their daily lives and their routines. And that is all one day, pretty much uh, two Fridays ago, um, that happened in one day. We just woke up and said, you're not gonna go to school for about somewhere between three, five, eight weeks. Um, and it's really ambiguous and they don't know when they're gonna see their friends. Their, their whole day is mapped out in this routine. And now that's gone. Um, and many parents are really struggling to provide that routine and scheduling. So part of not leading to escalation, the communication about what do each of us need when we start to feel irritated and often circling back to Stephen again, oftentimes that's personality based and you are the expert on your kid. So you know their personality, what they might need most. Um, and then having those extra time for snuggles and physical activity. Um, so helping them structure their day. I've seen a lot of really, um, really amazing schedules online on Facebook and Instagram and, and they're like by the hour. It is incredible. If parents can do this, oh my gosh, I don't know how they could. So just having like an AM block and a PM block and writing one or two things in there, you're, you're nailing it. That's amazing. So to be able even just to have that loose structure and making sure that there is a big chunk of exercise in there will help everybody regulate themselves in the household. Absolutely. And the more you label and model what you're doing and make it really apparent for the whole household, everybody else will follow suit too. Um, so you have a lot of power and control and how this evolves in your household. Um, and so, keeping together while social distancing, it's gonna be great for some families and certainly some families that are already stressed um, or low on resources, um, it's, it's gonna bring out more difficulties. And so I, I also wanna make sure we get across the message that providers are still out there. I'm seeing people every day on video chat and I think, you know, so Steven. Um, and so people, providers are out there and they're waiting for you to call because now is a time where definitely, you know, we talked about alcohol and substance use, anxiety, depression, being the longer we're socially isolated, the more we're at risk for depression. That's how humans are. So reach out. There are lots of resources. Don't go it alone. And this is extraordinary circumstances. So even just having a 15 minute conversation with a professional around, my kids are climbing on the walls, help me brainstorm it might be worth it during this time to keep everybody sane and together and be, get on the other side of this, because it will end. We will look back on this and say, wow, wasn't that extraordinary? But for this brief period of time, you might need some extra support, don't hesitate. I really like, you know, just to pick up on one of the many uh, good things you said in that, um, you know, the, I think the, uh, for me, the change the repertoire in which you're interacting with your children and, and, you know, I, I think that to just to underscore one thing you said is the, the kind of inverse mirroring 
if your child just kind of goes off like a Roman candle, you know, you can, you can, you're, you're, you, if you actually step in and just drop your voice to the exact measure that the voice is being raised. Yeah, at least in my family, that was just seen as like just a bizarre and crazy event that happened. You know, like everything got calm right at that moment, mm -hmm. and it was a, it was really quite hopeful because it kind of brought things different. So changing the repertoire uh, in which you're parenting is probably necessary in this time. Mm -hmm. and, and again, um, so many parents are trying to balance the work they're doing, and they're now homeschooling, and they're now doing all all yeah. sorts of things to keep the the family going in a way that they mm -hmm. never have before. Um, yeah. I, I want to make a shift. We're, we're, we're amazingly, we're at 817. We, we still have 142 people listening. So grateful to all of you. I want to go and ask a couple more questions from the floor. Um, one of them is that, um, is, is what should we expect to see in the coming weeks uh, as this progresses further psychologically? What, what is going to, what is going to, um, uh, when it's going to happen in, in, as we move forward? That's going to be really difficult to predict. That depends on what our leaders decide to do in terms of managing this pandemic, whether they decide to end the social distancing and get people back to work or whether they decide to draw this out. We do know that the longer we have the social distancing in place, um, the, the greater the chances of, of problems uh, like depression that Julie pointed out, and also non-adherence to social distancing. People are gonna get stressed and bored and they're not gonna to adhere to it. So that's a concern, but it really depends on what our leaders do and the nature of the pandemic itself. I mean, the Spanish flu came in waves where people experienced one wave, it ended, they all breathed a sigh of relief, went back on, on their daily lives and then were hit by a second, even more lethal wave. So we don't know if that will happen here or not. So there's that uncertainty as well. So who knows, anyone's guess, there's just so many variables at play, it's just very difficult to predict where this is going to lead. Yeah, I, I think my, my concern is really over the social distancing and the, the isolation. And for those who already are, are struggling with that, I, I think this is gonna really intensify the experience. But you know, even, even for those who are pretty well connected, you know, I, I think the, the internet connections are nice, but um, people are gonna be longing for more. You know, I want to see each other in person. And I think we're going to have to think, you know, carefully about about that. And um, yeah, because I, I think you're right, Stephen. I think people are going to start, uh, stop isolating. I think they're going to get together. They're saying, we've been fine. We've been isolated for seven weeks, eight weeks. We're, we're mm -hmm. good. And, and that's, you know, we know that that still doesn't prevent the risk. And just to say that... Uh, there's some of you are raising your hands, and I want to say that um, if you can actually go to the right to the right of your um, uh, where you see participants, and if you put in Q&A, you can actually ask a question we'll raise to the panelists. And to pick up on that, um, uh, Martha Whitaker uh, has an incredible question, which is uh, we've been talking about, as uh, Dr. Uh, Brakazuski Brak says so beautifully, kiddos, but uh, her concern <laughs> is about teenagers. And in uh, adolescents uh, who are not fully mentally mature and are um, having a, an incredible uh, uh, experience of, of denial because so many of the of the important rituals around their progression in life, their their graduation or their 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 sports season, all of these things are being kind of taken away from them. 
and 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 there's a lot of resentment. And Dr. Dr. Taylor, in your in your book, you talk about people who have kind of an unrealistic optimism bias is the term you use. Um, you know, the people who think that they're not going to be uh, uh, approached. And 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 I guess the question that Martha is asking is, what do we do when you don't when someone you have people without completely fully formed uh, prefrontal cortexes? <laughs> You know, in a face, you know, in, interacting with their environment a little bit like the 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 the, the spring break kids on the beach, which actually uh, is behavior that happened all over the globe. Adolescents uh, yep. were, were were completely uh, disregarding the social distancing. Well, it's a case. <coughs> excuse me. It's a case where someone has to play mum or dad, and in this case, the government stepped in to regulate social distancing, and that happened in Vancouver too. The sun came out. And all these young kids went to the park. And if you look at the public opinion polls, they don't see COVID-19 as a big deal. They don't see themselves being um, at risk in terms of their own health. They're more stressed about finances in some cases or um, graduating from school or not being to hook up with their friends. And they cope with that stress by getting out there and socializing with one another. So I think there are no easy answers to this problem, but it's been dealt with by... Um, clamping down on, um, on people getting together in groups, clarifying what social distancing means. And that's an important thing because a lot of people don't understand what social distancing is. Many people think it's okay to have a dinner party so long as it's at home. That is not social distancing. So right. public education um, is an important factor. And who knows, it might help if uh, we educate people about the unrealistic optimism bias, but I doubt it. I talked about my friend earlier on who had this bias and his bias was shattered when one of his personal friends died of COVID-19. Sadly, that might be what has to happen in some cases, that their, their illusion of invulnerability does get shattered when they, they see that their partying led to their, their grandparents getting infected, things like that. And I think that we can, we can use that to personalize, um, to personalize, middle school, high schoolers, an understanding, because certainly, yeah, that prefrontal cortex development through the early 20s um, is really important in helping us step outside of ourselves to consider other perspectives. Um, and that invincibility bias that, that adolescents experience is real. That's why like, adolescents are known for doing dumb stuff, because uh, they aren't assessing the risks. Um, you know, it's not that they are just superhuman and agile, it's they're not assessing the risk. Um, fully. So for to personalize it, and this is where that balancing comes in, because for some um, adolescents and, and also um, early 20-year-olds still going out to a lot of bars and doing, there's our like, I know in Detroit, there are these speakeasy clubs that people are setting up to, to still go out at night and um, to, to help identify in your life. And sometimes you can draw like a web almost, like a network, who in your life is at high risk for developing symptoms, being hospitalized, and, and perhaps you know, ultimately dying. And, and bringing it in a little bit closer to home that there are real people in our lives who we are, we are social distancing. Um, our symptoms might be mild and we would weather this, but we love and know people who are at risk. Um, and drawing them as a node and then a couple people around them and then a close family member or friend and then the people around them. So making it real of who are you 
you're putting at risk. These are real people who you've had real experiences with, um, who you might really love, and making it more real that way. I think also turning the um, your choice to stay in is a superhero move. Your choice to actually stay in, and you might be bored, you might feel angry, you are missing out on a lot, and that really sucks. But you staying in is a superhero move. You're, you're quite literally, you could be saving somebody that you might come in contact with your friend, Sarah, and it might infect her grandmother. You don't know who you're infecting. And so staying in is a benevolent move. And, and sometimes we can really rely and evaluate our own family values and speak from that direction. In this family, these are the things we do. And so during this in unstable time where things are really unpredictable, we're still gonna live these values. And here's the actions that we're gonna take on a daily basis to live those values, even in this circumstance. Um, so there's a sense of family identity, self-identity, and more realism, um, and hopefully kind of shaking out of that egocentric view of an adolescent. I think it's a really, really important insight, uh, doctor, because I, I think that um, uh, as I, um, uh, one of the things that Dr. Taylor has in his book um, is that, is that, you know, you can, uh, and it's a term that uh, having lived in Canada for six years, I understand the appeal of it which is to, to create herd immunity is what is called when, when, a, when a population is um, uh, able to ward off uh, new, new, um, new viruses because uh, a large number of that, of that herd, of that population is, is, uh, uh, has, has um, a protection against it. And, and he came up with a, a slogan called join the herd. Um, uh, you know, create that herd immunity. And, and, and again, that's another... Um, it, it's really that values have to kind of somehow lead this discussion, and um, and and I might add also just uh, I, I it's one of the comments that has come through from the panelists is that uh, that's it found that Stephen and I touched our face more often than you. Uh, Stephen Taylor um, and uh, Dr. Julie. Um, so I, I assure you, folks, I, I am basically in self-isolation completely. I'm going mm -hmm. home after this. I'm across to the church. I'm going to wash my hands, go back home across to my church, to my home. So, but I, I take your point uh, to the person who raised that. I think the um, uh, I think that as we we're moving towards the end. Um, and I, uh, I, I do want to, there's a couple of people who have raised some uh, really important things uh, for us to think about in that, in that what are the, what is the psychic and psychological after effects of this pandemic? What are we going to be dealing with? Um, uh, what will psychologists be dealing with? What will counselors be dealing with? What will, what will pastors be dealing with? Um, what will even human resources be dealing with after this pandemic um, for the next five years or so at least? That's the big uncertainty, isn't it? Um, some people will, will cruise through this experience and they will be fine. They'll get back on their cruise ships and go on cruises. For other people, they might have lingering psychological problems like post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. Um, for people who lost their jobs or their marriages or their mortgages or houses as a result of the financial impact of, of COVID-19, they could be facing some serious um, emotional consequences in the aftermath. For those who lost loved ones, that's important. For other people, the, the impact might be more subtle. They might have a, a different outlook on life. 
that suddenly it's no longer appealing to use paper money or to touch real magazines, that, um, that people, some people might be a little more reluctant to leave the house. That's really hard to say. One of the things that makes this so complicated is this pandemic is occurring in the context of climate change too. So we will be experiencing an increasing number of other sorts of disasters, including wildfires and floods and so forth. So um, maybe COVID-19 provides us with a, a training ground to practice coping skills for dealing with the uncertainties that are coming up in the future. I, I think it's a hard question to answer. Um, the first thing that came to mind for me though was, I, I think we're gonna be more resilient. Um, you know, because we, we, we will have gone through this and we will have witnessed a very difficult out of the ordinary time. And yet I think there will be a coming together, I, you know, to the extent that it's comparable, you know, I think again about 9-11 and there was a real coming together and sense of community um, weeks and months after that. Um, this is quite, quite a bit different in some ways, but I, we do know that people are very resilient and, um, I, and I, I fully expect that to be part of um, most people's psyche. We're gonna move towards, gonna move towards a close with this, but I do have a couple of uh, 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 further um, uh, questions. Uh, and um, before I get to them, uh, I want to do a, just a shameless plug for our future programming in this. We're so grateful that all of you have been able to join us tonight. Uh, next Wednesday at 7 p.m., we're going to have Bishop Bonnie Perry, who is the uh, recently consecrated bishop of the Episcopal uh, uh, Diocese of, of um, Michigan. And she's going to be talking a little bit about leadership uh, in, in, in a time of pandemic and, and what she's, and, and her also is, giving her an opportunity to kind of speak about the kind of work that she's doing in the community and her hopes and dreams and, 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 and her work there. And then, in, and then in, uh, uh, on the 15th of April, um, we are gonna have an incredible opportunity for us to meet with um, uh, John Berry, who's written an, a book on, uh, called The Great Influenza. It's one of the great histories of, of pandemics. Um, and um, he's going to be with us for a similar uh, a similar conversation about this, and to offer us some some ideas of the history. Uh, what does history teach us uh, about the pandemics we're facing? So the final question that we have uh, for tonight, I'm going to kind of bring together uh, a few questions that have been asked. Uh, one is that you know one of the benefits of this experience has been that. Um, people have been actually reconnecting in ways that they never have. It's been amazing for me personally to see people who are not technologically uh, skilled or adept um, somehow finding ways to make connections over technology. And I do think that's going to change things in the future. We're, we're going to get better at this. I mean, we're making our way through this webinar. And none, I mean, I didn't know much about Zoom uh, less than a week ago. Um, and, to connect with that, what kind of hope um, and what kind of what kind of uh, vision for the future that that might be positive can you offer? I agree with Stephen's comment that this is going to make us more resilient and bring us together closer as a community. We're using these opportunities to learn these, get more comfortable with these new tools to come together. 
Now, I'm hopeful that those benefits will stick, that once the pandemic passes, our resilience and our sense of community will improve. That's, that's really wonderful. That's a wonderful way. And then, um, you know, I'm, I want to thank you all for being part of this incredible presentation. Uh, we are going to uh, let you all go tonight. But why don't we, um, there have been questions that have been asked and we're learning to, to do this. And I want you all to know uh, how grateful we are that you all have been here and following this pandemic. I want to thank Dr. Taylor for taking time to with us and to give us some, um, uh, to, 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 for, for, you know, writing an incredibly important and relevant book uh, uh, on, a, on an intuition. Thank you for following that curiosity and thank you for doing that kind of work. It's, it, it gives me hope that the university uh, can, can continue to be a, a place in the, in the civic order that, that actually furthers the good and the true and the beautiful in real ways. Thank you to Stephen uh, Huprick for his incredible insights and expertise uh, in the area of personality uh, and, and for offering the, the important insights about self-compassion uh, and pacing yourself. And thank you to Dr. Julie for giving us incredible insight into uh, family dynamics and how to manage this in a way that we can actually emerge uh, 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 stronger from this and to develop new ways to, to, to live together. And then finally, I want to thank Meredith Skoronsky, who's been behind the scenes in making this possible. Um, if we can, I want to just close with a quick prayer for everybody who is um, uh, suffering and, and everybody who's been here and all of our concern. And so uh, in our tradition, we say the Lord be with you and also with you. Dear God, we thank you for this opportunity. We ask that you'd bless all of those who work or watch or weep this night. Give your angels charge over those who sleep, uh, tend the sick, heal the joyous, give rest to the weary, all for your name's sake. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christ Church Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at ChristChurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christ Church Cranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always. <laughs>